0: There are more lobbyists for food and agriculture than there are lobbyists for the military, which is incredible. And they have tremendous power in Congress, and they have tremendous power at USDA. So they kind of have a back door into USDA for policy. It's it, just the way it is. And, and so when it comes to things like the NOSB, National Organic Standards Board, which has 15 members, four of them are supposed to be farmers. Well, um, historically, USDA has put agribusiness representatives in the farmer's spot. And we complained and complained. So what they do, they went to Congress and lost Farm Bill and they changed the law so agribusiness representatives can be farmers now on the NOSB. And so we really are never gonna have the power to to control the National Organic Program. But I I will say that the National Organic Standards are important um, as a baseline.
1: Welcome to The Real Organic Podcast. I'm Lindley Dixon, co-director of The Real Organic Project. We're a grassroots, farmer-led movement with an add-on organic food label to distinguish organic crops grown in healthy soils and organic livestock raised on well-managed pasture. You just heard from Real Organic Dairy farmer, Francis Tickey, a former member of the National Organic Standards Board and now a Real Organic Standards Board and executive board member. Francis and his wife, Susan, own Radiance Dairy in Fairfield, Iowa. As a PhD soil scientist and longtime dairy farmer, Francis is a wealth of knowledge about both pasture management and organic dairying. His work on the NOSB has helped him better understand the lack of enforcement of the organic grazing standard and how he believes the Real Organic Project is the best recourse. I'm going to invite up our next speaker, who is Francis Tickey, who was on that National Organic Standards Board when all of this was happening. He um, was part of the Soil Seven. He has a dairy in Iowa that is one of the most beautiful places you'll ever see. Um, and, and I have learned so much about proper gra- grazing from Francis. So, so come on up, Francis, you're next. Thank you, Thank you for being here. <laughs> Do you need a headset or a mic?
0: So I first started organic farming in 1975. So what I want to do here is talk about my journey through organic and through the land-grant university and working at USDA and how I see that all unfold. Um, back in 1975, I was on my family's dairy farm in Minnesota. Yeah, Minnesota. <laughs> and uh, um, I had just come back, oh, a while ago, had come back from college, and um, I'd been a little bit radicalized by the, the, the Vietnam War and all that, and my, my philosophy of science teacher said, question everything. So when I came into the agriculture, I thought, well, why are we using these chemicals? So um, we started trying organic farming. My brothers liked it. My father was not very happy. It didn't go over well in the weekly card games he had with his other farmer friends. However, my father was an innovator in his own time. Um, He actually bought his farm, the farm we grew up on, in 1928, when he was 17 years old. And we know what happened after 1928, the the Depression. And and a lot of his friends were all going out of business. Their farms were were, were failing. And uh, he said one time he sold a cow and a calf for $14. Um, And he was about ready to lose his farm. And and then FDR came in. And um, what was it called, the the Emergency um, Mortgage Act? It saved his farm which kind of let me be here today. (laughs) Um, And also, in 1935, FDR started the um, Soil Conservation Service. And on the farm my father grew up on, it had been plowed up and down the hills. This is in the Mississippi River um, Blufflands, slopes of 10 to 20 percent. And my father said that one of the hills was so, the gullies was so deeply eroded that he could hide a, a team of horses in it. And so erosion was very bad. And so the conservation service was teaching farmers how to do things like strip cropping. And actually, this is a picture of my father's farm. He was one of the early adopters of this. And so um, he was innovative in his own time, but organic was a little beyond his reach, actually. But when I um, started the organic the first year, what I did is these strip crops, they are like corn, oats, corn, hay, corn, hay, corn. And so these various strips um, were put in place in order to to reduce erosion. Well, I was in charge of spraying the herbicides, so I skipped the middle one in one of the fields. <laughs> and uh, to my surprise, throughout the year, we, didn't have, we had virtually no weeds. And, um, and now, I, in, in retrospect, I know why, because it had been in hay for many years and the weed seed bank was depleted. But I was very excited, and my brothers were, and we decided to put the whole farm into organic the next, day, next year. And so we had a lot of things to work out beyond that, but we kept at it. And so uh, I got so excited about organic, I decided I wanted to go back to um, Langrun University and give them the good news, you know? And even though I had been a music, uh, you laugh, yeah. You had been a music, and I had been a music and philosophy major. And so um, I had to take a year of of sciences, and then I, I got into the graduate program at the University of Minnesota. And interestingly, it's, it's very reductionist. You know, I had been in philosophy where everybody's opinion was kind of okay. Here in science, it was a different story, you know. And um, in order to major in graduate school in, a, in a soil science, you had to pick among five disciplines. Either soil pedology, how soils origi- originated, soil physics, things like compaction and water flow in the soil, which is really exciting, right? And soil chemistry or, or mineralogy and um, Soil biology, but even soil biology then was taught, I was very disappointed in my soil biology classes. It was like taxonomy. It was no ecology being taught. So that was, that was back in the 80s. Um, and the, third, the fifth one was um, soil fertility, which I chose because it kind of integrated things as best as possible. But there was really no soil ecology being taught in the soil science department. Uh, early on, I, I went into one of my soil uh, fertility professors, I knocked on his door, and I went in to talk to him about organic farming. And, I was going on and on about organic farming for a few minutes. He sat there stone-faced. And then he said, and I remember exactly what he said. He said, well, it depends upon how far back in the horse and buggy era you want to go. And so I learned then and there not to, not to tell anybody I had been an organic farmer, all through gra- six years of graduate school and, and four years working at USDA in Washington. And what I learned instead was when we had discussions or debate, I could kind of see the outline of the box they were thinking in, and i try to pick a little at, at the outside of it. I didn't tell them I was really over here, you know, that when, because it was really like a, a kind of a heretic thing to be um, involved, Well, you really weren't involved with organic. If you were in a research university, like a land grant, uh, organic was really a subject of ridicule in seminars. Organic would bring some chuckles out from everybody. So that's where we, we started back in, when I started, you know, um... So um, I wanted to trace how it changed in my, from my perspective from both the external pressures and from the internal um, awakening of the scientists. And externally, we saw that in 1988, the LISA program came in. Anybody remember that low-input sustainable agriculture? Yeah. And, and that was um, radical, but it got in because of organizations like the Sustainable Ag Coalition and other environmental groups that got it through Congress, and then put it into USDA. And USDA didn't like that. They didn't like to have to, t- to administer this program at first, um, even though it brought money in. But it's kind of a zero-sum game because at USDA, there are many agencies. When I was there, there were 36 agencies, and they fight amongst each other for budgets and for whatever else. And if, if they get plopped in there, a $4 million um, new program, it's kind of a zero-sum thing. They have to kind of weed something else out, and they don't like that. And so also, ATRA came in, the um, alternative technology transfer for rural areas. That was put into extension service at USDA. They didn't like that at all. I was an extension service. Um, other things, when the organic program came in, um, after the law was passed to create the National Organic Program, was put into the Agricultural Marketing Service. And they did not want that. Nobody wanted it. They passed it around until finally it landed there. So that's kind of how all the external pressures came. However, now there's grant money. Now, in a growing budget over the years, Lisa grew and grew. And so um, the land-grant university scientists, who were a little on the fence at first, started to put in for grant money. And there always had been some renegades out there in the land-grant universities who were doing good work and were advocating for sustainable agriculture. Now, my own professor at University of Illinois, um, when I did my PhD work there, he was uh, a really nice guy, but he didn't know I had been an organic farmer, and he was very critical of organic and sustainable he had a slide that he used as, at his talks that had a, it said sustainable agriculture, and it had a picture of, of, of pigs eating at a trough, and somebody had photoshopped in a tube from the pig's butt back to the trough again. And that was uh, good for some laughs at scientific presentation, presentations. Um, so anyway, you can see why I kept quiet. But as time went on, um, as more and more money came in, more and more scientists came on board. And so that really made a difference over time. The other thing is that about that same time, some scientists, the renegades out there in soil science world, were, were starting to talk about soil quality. And at first, it was very reductionist. It was soil quality was defined at how it, that you can grow a lot of corn and soybeans with high management. And so, but then they began to look at soil quality as being more comprehensive, looking at organic matter and other physical characteristics. Um, but that was considered heresy. One published paper even said that. Um, Soil quality is like uh, it's like trying to define politically correct soils. In today's world, you know, what that means? It's like a woke soil, right? So, <laughs> so anyway, that evolved. Soil quality evolved into soil health. And that became more comprehensive, looking at soil ecology, looking at a robust soil ecology, having a lot of um, input of organic matter to build all the pools of soil organic matter. And so soil health being controversial slow, but that kind of the stepping stone into getting the community more and more into, um, into accepting these things. And I saw it happen. I was at USDA in Washington for, since uh, from 1998, 1988 to 1992, and then went back to farming organically in Iowa. and um, I, you know, I hadn't told my colleagues that uh, I had been doing on-farm, uh, that I had been an organic farmer. But also, um, I was going to leave USDA and uh, buy this little farm in Iowa that was already processing milk on the farm, a little dairy farm. And that was considered kind of crazy. Um, one of my economist friends took me aside and said, "You know, everybody's quitting this on-farm stuff." He said, "You're really going the wrong way here." And, um, but I took a, a look at the price of milk on the shelf, and I said, I can make it work. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not really much of a um, financial person. Susan, my wife, does all the financial. She's the wizard on the farm. I just kind of have fun out there. So, um, <clears throat> so anyway, uh, but I, I re- it took me a while to realize the difference. Back in, the, in decades ago, there were a lot of small-scale farm uh, processing things. and. So pretty soon the, the industrial food system started coming in, and now these little farms that were pro, uh, processing and selling locally had been profitable, but now these industrial things were so big that they were swamping them out, and they can't compete on that level. They didn't differentiate. You know, milk was milk was milk. But, but now um, I realized that if you, have, you have to have a specialty product. You can't compete with the industrial model. And in our case, in our dairy farm, I, I could identify several things. We're organic, now we're ROP certified, um, we're grass-based. Um, one thing we don't do that actually is value added, we don't homogenize the milk, so that's value added. And Abby, we can't be raw milk, though, yet. <laughs> um, we have Jersey milk, which is higher in solids. Um, we, it's local and people, um, it gets more fresh and people really think their cows are their cows. They come out to visit the cows a lot. Um, another thing is that we have recently switched, are switching to A2 milk. We're about 90% there. So you have to have a specialty product. You can't compete with the industrial model head-to-head. Um, let's see, where am I going here? I, I, I usually use PowerPoint, so I, ha- I have to have a little cheat sheet here to make sure I get myself in the right place. So now we're getting to... In, oh, in 2002, 10 years after I had left USDA, um, I had the opportunity to come and speak to a U.S. Senate committee on, uh, to testify to an ag committee on, on some conservation program. And one of my colleagues, former colleagues at USDA, invited me to give a seminar at USDA. So 10 years later, you know, in 1992, I couldn't say a word about organic. Then I just laid the whole thing out in a PowerPoint. I showed them all the farm and organic, and they were thrilled. I couldn't believe it. The same colleagues that were, were terribly negative on organic before, in 10 years, they had changed a lot. And then in 2003, USDA, um, due to pressure from organizations outside, Congress passed the, uh, the funding for organic, the R let's see O-R-E-I, Organic Research and Education Initiative. And now there was research funding available for organic, uh, for, yeah, for organic for the scientists. And so a lot of people got on board. And so that was a huge step forward. And now, you know, organic is fine at grant universities, talking about it and doing research on it and so on. Um, However, we know what happened next is that now organic around the turn of the century is becoming a multi-billion dollar industry. And so now the food industry is looking at it and saying, hey, that's the fastest growing section of food. we got to get part of that pie. Actually, they want the whole pie. And as Hugh will tell us later in, in, in blueberries and in, in tomatoes, they want the whole pie. And, and they want to make it for profitability. We did it for principle. They want to do it for profit. So what do you do? You want to uh, get the highest price you can, but you want to do as little as possible to make uh, to make your expenses low. And so then we see, as Lindley pointed out, the hydroponics. We see the cows in the CAFOs, the chickens in the warehouses, and that's the way they, they make it um, profitable. And so, of course, the Real Organic Project is needed because of that. And um, when we first started the Real Organic Project, I was thinking that maybe we can hold these standards up and USDA will get the picture and, and they will. You know, we can get them to change. And Dave Chapman laughed at me, and uh, now I laugh too, because I know what's not going to happen. Because not only Ancelee Pingree, a congresswoman, um, tells us very clearly how much money is being spent on lobbyists. She said there are more lobbyists for food and agriculture than there are lobbyists for the military, which is incredible. And they have tremendous power in Congress, and they have tremendous power at USDA. So they kind of have a back door into USDA for policy. It, it's just the way it is. And, and so when it comes to things like the NOSB, National Organic Standards Board, which has 15 members, four of them are supposed to be farmers. Well, um, historically, USDA has put agribusiness representatives in the farmer's spot. And we complained and complained, so what they do? They went to Congress and lost Farm Bill, and they changed the law so agribusiness representatives can be farmers now on the NOSB. And so we really are never gonna have the power to to control the National Organic Program. But I I will say that the National Organic Standards are important um, as a baseline. Um, because the uh, NOSB does all this vetting of materials uh, for on the nationalist um, list of allowed and prohibited materials. That's a very, uh, very big job. We can add, now, now often the NOSB will, rec- will recommend uh, a product be removed from that list, and, and USDA will not do it because the lobbyists are telling them not to. But now I, just, I want to point that out because the difference between the NOSB National Organic Standards Board and our real Organic Project Standards Board which is fifteen members we 're mostly all farmers um, organic dairy farmers or not organic dairy farmers organic farmers, and we we, we choose the new members by internally, we vote on who's going to be the new members. So we can keep that power over control over who is going to be on our boards. So they're all organic people, organic farmers, whereas NOSB is totally out of our control. Um, one last thing I want to bring up is uh, we hear a lot about regenerative agriculture all of a sudden. And regenerative, interestingly, Robert Rodell talked about regenerative agriculture. When I was um, starting to farming in the 70s, um, the main source of, of uh, information we had was the the New Farm Magazine. Anybody remember that magazine? Yeah. And um, the subtitle of that magazine on the front cover, it said, a magazine of regenerative agriculture. And Robert Rodell was talking about regenerative agriculture way back then, and it didn't catch on. And now I see why, because we didn't even think about ecology in the land grant universities as, as being important. But now we can see that regenerative, a big part of that is the ecology. Unfortunately, regenerative has been co-opted within a few years. The big industry, they realize they can co-opt organic, they can co-opt regenerative just as well. They want to put regenerative or climate smart on that Wheaties or Cheerios box, and that's it. So they, they see it as no-till with, with Roundup, as Lindley said. And you know, in Iowa, we have 23 million acres of corn and soybeans every year. And, and a little effort to try to get cover crops, and uh, about 5% of them now have cover crops of, of cereal rye. But usually what, ha- what always happens in the industrial model is that the, the rye gets about this tall in the spring, and we hit it with Roundup. And so the cover crop does not at all reach its full potential. Whereas if we could, do, what we've been doing as organic farmers, let the rye grow up this high. Just at anthesis, thesis, just when it's starting to set seed, roll it down and plant a crop in there, like soybeans, then it's... Uh, To me, this is very regenerative. Because now we have this 10,000 pounds per acre of biomass, above ground biomass, plus all that root mass. And that lays down in there, and it it prevents the weeds from growing through, provides a mulch all year long to hold the moisture in there, provides an ideal habitat for microbes, soil ecology, for food source and for um, moisture control. And so this is what I see as more of a real regenerative. As a matter of fact, I like to look at the word regenerative um, because we have to hold these guys uh, to the fire here on this. We can't let them call anything regenerative. The word regenerative has the word generate in it. It's to regenerate. And if we look at how our soils were generated by nature, it's very instructive. Now, I'm from the Midwest. In the upper Midwest, we claim to have some of the best soils in the world. Even though since we started farming, we lost half our topsoil, and we lost 60% of our organic carbon, we still have deep, black, rich soils. But how did they get there? The last glacier receded 10,000 years ago, And then there was no soil at all. It was a geologic wasteland. The glacier had two miles thick, had scraped all this material off and dropped it in 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 the upper Midwest. And and then in those 10,000 years, as plants and animals colonized that loose material, they started to put organic matter in it. And to me, soil is defined by organic matter. It was not soil at first. And as the plants and animals colonized that, they created this soil. And a, a big part of it was the prairie plants out there were very tall and deep rooted. And then when the herds of bison would come through and graze off that plant, now it was short and trampled, and it didn't need all that root system. So it slough some of that root mass off in the ground, grow new tops, and then, these episodic grazing things would pulse this organic matter deep into the soil. So this is what created our soil. This is how our soils were generated. So to regenerate soils, we mimic that process, like it's done on this farm with our grazing. We allow the cows to move around the farm. We have 60 paddocks on our farm. Twice a day, they get new grass. So it's kind of like the bison moving around, and then it can regrow. We let it regrow to, to regenerate and then regenerate a new root system. So that's what I think is regenerative. And, and I will go a step further and say that real organic is real regenerative. And real regenerative is real organic. Um, one last thing I was going to say. Um, just a minute here, if I can. i still got a minute left. <laughs> um, well, I just wanted to, to say that I, I think that that this real organic project is really important in the future. It's it's important for as long as we want to have real organic food, because if we stop our efforts, who's going to do it? It's it's going, we're going to go back to the NOSP and run by agribusiness. And I give a lot of credit for this whole thing to Dave Chapman, <laughs> who has been the leader. <laughs> Dave was a spark plug that started all this. I was on the NOSB at the last meeting where we considered the hydroponics. And after that meeting, Dave organized farmers. A lot of farmers participated, and they get credit. But Dave, I don't know how he does it. He's running a farm, and he, he's, he organizes all of us crazy people, and, and we got, we're we getting it done. And now he's brought on Lindley, and, and Lindley is wonderful. as They're two great co-directors, and we have a great team underneath it. And so what I'm saying, and I'm not supposed to be doing fundraising but I'm saying is that we all need to, to contribute what we can. You know, Some of us can not contribute a lot of money, but we can contribute what we know. And um, we, we all should just try to work together to, to make sure that this Real Organic Project continues on. Thank you.
1: Thank you for listening to the Real Organic Podcast. Our movement is growing because you're subscribing and sharing these podcasts with your friends. Keep it up and leave us a rating and a review as well. You can find a video version of this interview on our newly designed website, realorganicproject.org or on our YouTube channel. And you can join us for a new episode featuring voices from the organic movement every Tuesday.